Our text this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 4, continuing in our series on 1 Peter. This is the New Testament lesson, and we'll make three points. They're there in your bulletin. Um, Suffering, abuse, and judgment. So first, suffering. Let us recall the flow of thought from last week. So I'm going to try and refresh your memory a little bit about the end of chapter 3. In broad outline, it was a lot like the creed. Christ has died. Christ was raised, proclaimed his victory. Christ has ascended into heaven with all the powers in subjection to him. And this matters, this matters to these exiles called to partake of Christ's suffering, to follow in the footsteps of the cross, because it means that their situation of weakness, our situation of weakness, powerlessness, in that situation, they and we are already joined to Christ who is the victor. Right? It means that in their suffering and in your suffering, right, they and we already partake of his victory. That's basically what we said last week. And yet, the transition to chapter 4 can seem a bit jarring. You might want to look at the New Testament text. Especially jarring if Christian victory is defined improperly. So you zero in on the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of this text. And the end of chapter 3 says this. It's a triumphant note. Christ has been raised. He's ascended into heaven. He's at God's right hand. He has angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. That's the end of chapter 3. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. It's startling. Christ has ascended on high. He's triumphant. All the powers are subjected to him. His suffering is in the past. And yet, Peter says, therefore, since he suffered in the body, as if he goes backwards from the ascended Christ to the suffering Christ. Christ has ascended. Christ is triumphant. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, the ascended Christ drives us to the suffering Christ. And this is an instinct we need to cultivate. Since he suffered in the body, Peter says, arm yourselves to suffer in the body. Body here means the earthly life. You would expect something like this. Since Christ is ascended and triumphant over all the powers, and all the powers are subjected to him, go forth and conquer everything in his name. Instead you get, since Christ is ascended, remember that he suffered in the flesh, so arm yourself to suffer. How counterintuitive is that? Arm yourselves? What, what is this? Some kind of reverse Second Amendment? Arm, your, arm yourselves not to inflict, 
but to receive suffering. How about that? Arm yourself, not to inflict, but to receive suffering. Well, that's a little counterintuitive, I might say, as well. Arm yourselves. Since Christ is king, and Christ is ascended, and Christ has triumphed, remember that he suffered in the body, arm yourself to suffer in the body. Is your suffering reception armory full? Right, that's the armory we often don't check. Right, when you're counting your ammo, do you count this? Your suffering reception army? Peter says to the church, in light of the ascension, get locked and loaded to suffer. It could not be more startling, although it should not be surprising to anyone who's read the first three chapters of 1 Peter. Christian triumph, then, has not changed its form. It does not look like some grand social political conquest or some capturing of earthly power. In this age, it is always conformity to Christ crucified. That's what victory looks like for us. Resurrection power, reigning with the ascended Christ, looks like suffering with the crucified Christ. There's not two separate things in the Christian life. Suffering with the crucified Christ and then reigning with the ascended Christ. Paul says, we know the power of his resurrection being conformed unto his death. Resurrection power in this age is always in this form. Union and suffering with the crucified one. As I've said before here, Jesus never says to the church, never says to us, take up your resurrection and follow me. Right? It is always take up your cross and follow me. And there's just, that's just a version of what Peter's saying. Because Christ is king and because he is ascended, arm yourselves. Fit yourself, prepare yourselves for suffering. Victory for us is paradoxical, cruciform in this age. Meaning, as Peter has taught us, it is found in the way of the cross, in following the footsteps of Christ. And so, it's a startling, bracing text, right? Arm yourselves or brace yourself. Or prepare yourself. It's too late often when the suffering comes upon you to be ready to suffer. Prepare yourselves, Peter says, for martyrdom in all of its forms. Adopt, he goes on to say, the same attitude, which here means the same perception or the same resolve as Christ himself had. Notice that in the text. Take up the same attitude, the same resolve that Christ had, who the book of Hebrews tells us, what was Christ's attitude? What was his perception of things? What was his resolve? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Arm yourselves with that attitude. 
Arm yourselves then for an array of suffering. From very small acts of self-denial, to turning the other cheek, to going the extra mile, to social ostracization that these Christians themselves are facing, to the stripping away of one's property, and even unto death eventually. Now, it's important to get this. Peter's point to the church is not get ready for suffering in general. You know, just normal human misery in a fallen world, though there's plenty of that. His point is, like Christ, prepare to suffer for your confession, for your testimony, for righteousness' sake. Those who suffer this way, Peter says, are done with sin. So, what a remarkable statement that is. Those who suffer this way are done with sin. It's as if suffering, almost suffering by itself, could burn sin right out of us. That almost nothing works like suffering works to wrench us from all of the vain things that charm us the most. Right? Suffering clarifies the mind and weans us from the world. We don't like to hear this. Nobody wants to believe this. It's not in our nature. We resist it. Peter says those who suffered this way in the, in the flesh are done with sin. Now this, of course, is not some magical power that suffering has by itself. Of course not, right? Suffering in many people actually produces more sin. Yet Peter does say, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Why is this? It's because he's not talking about suffering in general. He's talking about suffering in union with a, partic- a participation in Christ's own sufferings. Right? And thus a sharing in Christ's destruction of sin. He suffered in the body, putting an end to our involvement in sin. He died to sin, Peter has told us, so that we might live to righteousness. And thus one who resolves, who arms themselves to suffer for righteousness is done. They have broken with sin. And what's the result of this? It's there in verse 2. They don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So in short, right, the result here is liberty. The yoke of Christ is easy. It is freedom. Self-indulgent desire is bondage of the cruelest kind. Notice the break here in the text. The rest of your earthly life is saved from being wasted on sin. The rest of what Peter has called your time as exiles, your stay, is, is no longer wasted. You know, among other things, sin is just a tragic waste of time. And we have so little time to begin with. Right now, armed to suffer 
for what is right to share in Christ's sufferings, Peter says, now you can live the rest of the time you have for the will of God. And this will, the will of our Father, right, that divine will is for us the perfect law of liberty. It's the charter of our freedom. It's the way of happiness and fullness of life, right? The will of God is not some kind of noose for us. In the way of God's will lies the restoration of your very humanity. So that's the suffering that Peter surprisingly tells the church to arm itself for. Fill up your suffering armory. Second, abuse. Verse 3. For you've spent enough time in the past, he says, doing what pagans choose to do. He's telling these Christians, right, who, many of whom are new converts, you've already wasted enough of your life living contrary to the will of God. I think here of Paul's words in Romans where he says, what fruit were you getting from the things of which you are now ashamed? And what, fruit were you, what fruit were you gathering from them? Again, sin is not only just a waste of time, it's a descent into barrenness and shame and death. It always promises more than it delivers. And you, Peter says to the churches, you were living in debauchery, lunch, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. Earlier he told them you inherited a feudal way of life from your forefathers. This is that futility. From that futility, he says, the blood of Christ redeems you from futility. Living, that, living in a sinful manner like this is futile, among other things, right? Not only is it a waste of time, not only is it a descent into barrenness, there's a deep kind of futility about it. And so Peter, he's not just condemning. He's just telling them, this is how you used to live. You all know this, right? Um, He's also prescribing medicine. He's, you know, in, the, in, the, in the epistle already, instead of lust, he's prescribed fervent, sincere love for the brethren. And instead of drunkenness, he said, be sober and alert and fix your hope on the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And instead of detestable idolatry, he's called us to worship God, who in his mercy has called us out of this darkness out of this futility and barrenness, into his marvelous, life-giving, liberating light. These things that Peter condemns here, this vice list, if you will, they were woven into ancient pagan culture. Right? Peter doesn't necessarily know everybody in all these churches. He just knows they were non-believers, and now they're believers, so he, he can tell you, well, that, that means you lived this way previously. And these things are now woven into our modern post-Christian culture. So don't, don't be naive. Right? Don't be deceived about what we face. Arm yourselves to suffer and to be done with sin. And then live the rest of your days right, for the pure, good, acceptable will of God. And when you do this, right, since these things are now signs of enlightenment, 
Right? There, there are signs of unquestioned and unquestionable aspects of the religion of sexual anarchy. Right? The religion of the unbounded and the unfettered self, you can expect abuse. They got abuse, you're going to get abuse. Peter says to them, your old friends will not be pleased. They are surprised, look at that in verse 4, they are surprised that you don't join them. In what some translations call, you don't join them in a flood of dissipation. Right? You, you, you know, you've seen water just spilled out on the floor and creeping out, just wasted, dissipated, lost. That is what a life of immorality, whether the culture applauds it or not, does. That is what dissipation is. And that is what idolatry and all of our disordered desires bring. It brings a life which is like water spilled out on the floor. They are surprised that you don't do this anymore, Peter says. You can expect the culture to heap abuse on you. Right? It's 2020. How can you still believe that about human sexuality? They're shocked. Now, this is the first century, right? Peter says they're shocked that there are people who still don't take their cues from the culture or from the zeitgeist or from whatever is in the air. They are surprised. And so what do they do? He says they're going to heap abuse on you. Literally, the text says they blaspheme. Now, I want to make an important point here. The believers here in Peter's church are not charged, nor are they pictured, as going around like little self-righteous moral police. Right? Pointing out everybody else's faults. That is loathsome behavior. Right? What does 1 Corinthians say? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't worry about those outside. God will, God will be their judge. You're not their judge. Right? That's not what's going on. This is not the church like lecturing the culture. This is just the fact that Peter's flock has broken with the culture. Right? And what everybody knows in the culture is just natural and normal and wonderful. And the result of that is abuse. Oh, you see the difference? One is just being converted to Christ. The other is being converted to Christ and then going around and sort of lecturing everybody like, like you're a school marm about their moral, morality. So, all that's happened here is these Christians have been converted and the result is abuse, vilification, slander, castigation. This, the early Christians were and became a kind of living accusation in the consciousness of the Roman Empire, right? in the consciousness of the world. And it got them, at this point, vilified and abused, and shortly it would get them killed. People will have their disordered desires. And if, it's perceived, and there are threat, if something is perceived to be a threat to them, they will eventually kill for them. 
So when one arms themselves for suffering, in union with Christ's suffering, two things happen. First, one is done with sin, and second, one has abuse heaped on them. This is victory, by the way. Victory in the ascended Christ, Peter thinks. And I, I don't think, I mean, one passage after the other in First Peter proves to be remarkably relevant for the times we are in. And this is another one of those passages, right? One can bemoan this cultural trend or that cultural trend, right? One can read a news feed all day and get angry. Or one can arm themselves to suffer and be done with sin and be prepared for abuse. And we live this way, you know, not out of any hatred for the world or even any disdain for the world, and certainly not out of any superiority. Right? We live this way for the sake of the world. Right? That the mercy that has been lavished on us might spread out to the ends of the earth. We are never to forget that we are debtors to mercy alone. Right, that's the difference between a proclamation of the gospel of grace to the world and a kind of posture of moral lecturing to the world. And it's very easy for us to fall into the latter posture. And Peter calls us to the first one. It's not that we're better. We're not better. Peter doesn't think his flock is better than the pagan surrounding culture. He thinks that they've just received an abundant lavish gift of mercy that's beginning to transform them and that will result in a backlash. But what does he want them to do? He wants them to live, he told us earlier, beautiful lives, lovely lives among the pagans so that even if they accuse you of wrongdoing, they might see your goodness, your good deeds, and they might glorify God on the day he visits us. That is what we hope for. And that is Peter's hope. Though he knows, of course, there will have to be a reckoning at some point. And that brings us to the third point, which is the judgment. They, the, the abusers here, will give an account, Peter says in verse 5, to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, if we follow Peter's logic, there's something very um, sobering, and yet comforting here. And it's this. And you might have noticed this. If, I encourage you, if you're not, to be reading 1 Peter. It's, it's not hard to read. Um, and it yields great results if you read it over and over again. He does not expect the church. Now, this is a hard word, beloved, that I'm going to say right now. Especially, I think, for American Christians. He does not expect the church, abused and suffering, to be vindicated in history, in this life. He expects that to happen at the eschaton, at the judgment. He's already said in the very opening of the book, our inheritance is in heaven. Fix your hope completely, he says, not partially, completely, on the grace that we brought to you when Christ is unveiled. And so here... He points to the one who he says is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
right? The same one whom Jesus entrusted himself to when Jesus was suffering unjustly. We are being guarded, Peter says back in chapter 1, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God in Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead. The end of all things is at hand, Peter will say in the verse right after our text. For this reason, verse 6 says, get that, for this reason, because there is a coming judgment of the living and the dead, for this reason, the gospel was preached. Right? Everything is different if the church actually believes that the Lord Jesus Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And it's because of that that the gospel was preached, he says. So preaching is done by, it's done in the light of, and it's charged with the urgency of the coming of Christ in glory. The urgency of the eschaton, or the end. Preaching is a word from the future, a word from heaven, a word from the age to come that breaks into this age, that crashes into it and seeks to reorder our lives in this passing age. Listen to these uh, bracing and electric words from 2 Timothy 4. These words are often used at the ordinations of ministers to charge the new minister. So if you've ever been to an ordination service in the Reformed tradition, you've probably heard these words many times. 2 Timothy 4, Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God, And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. That's quite remarkable. He starts with the future, the appearing, the kingdom, the the coming Christ who's to judge the living and the dead. By that Christ who's coming to judge the living and the dead, I charge you to preach. Preaching lives in the presence of the one who is to judge the living and the dead. It lives and it breathes by his coming, by his appearing, by his future kingdom. It is because of the end of all things. Not because of any this worldly, historical, political, or social goals. It is because of the coming judgment. The appearance of Christ that the word is to sound forth. It's interesting, right? If you ask the question, why is the word proclaimed? You'll usually get this long list. People say, well, because we have to do this, and we have to do that, and we have to do that, and we have to do this, and we have to do that. Right? Paul charges Timothy to preach the word because Christ is going to judge the living and the dead. That's what drives the word. That's what pervades, or that's the, the wind in the sails of biblical preaching. We saw it in our call to worship today, which is taken from Acts chapter 10. This is Peter preaching himself, this same Peter. Christ commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Preaching is about standing in that great day of wrath. 
So the gospel then, it includes, as basic to it, the news, the announcement that Christ will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, Peter says, because that's true, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Peter has in mind here the Christian dead. Right, Your friends, your loved ones, your relatives, your parents, your grandparents, your ancestors. Buried here or buried elsewhere. Perhaps since they had died in the early church, the world thought they had lived for Christ in vain. And so Peter here assures the church that those who heaped abuse on them will give an account. And that those who embrace the way of the cross will be vindicated. Nothing in the Christian life, nothing, makes any sense at all if Christ is not coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. You're wasting your time here if he's not. You should be doing something else with your Sunday morning. But if he is, then everything is lit up and charged with that light and fire of the age to come. The Christian dead, he says, are judged according to human standards in the eyes of men in regard to the flesh. Just looks like they die like everyone else. Peter's aware of this, right? They're judged, meaning with respect to their lives on earth, their lives in this age. They may have had abuse heaped on them. They may have suffered greatly for Christ. But now, he says, they live according to God in regard to the Spirit, Judged in this age by men, they live in the spirit, he says, by the power of the age to come, they live before God. That's just the passage, the the, the route that Jesus Christ himself took, right? Last week we saw he was put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. So the saints that are joined to Christ, who arm themselves to suffer, who are done with sin, they die. Yes, they still die according to the flesh. But they live in the Spirit of God. This, notice, this and again, not any worldly comfort. I have a friend who's been something of a pastor and a mentor to me. It's not Pastor Vance, though he's been a mentor as well. But this is another man, a little older than me, who's been a pastor for a long time. And we were talking uh, maybe a month and a half, two months ago. And I told him I was preaching through 1 Peter. And he says um, that 1 and 2 Peter have been decisive in his life. Not only in his life personally, but in his pastoral ministry. And I said, now I have my own ideas as to why that might be so. But I asked. I said, why? What, what, what is it? And he said, it's the fact that Peter almost never gives the advice that we want to give. Right? We want to say things are going to get better. You know, your, your suffering is going to mean this will ha- happen and that will happen and this will happen and that will happen. And, and, and we, want to, we want to bring some sort of kind of false comfort. And Peter says to, to suffering Christians, you'll be vindicated when Christ appears in glory. Could you imagine could you imagine doing that in your counseling ministry, he says? People will think, well, that's, that's no value. What good is that? What comfort is that? 
He's so, uh, the instincts that Peter brings to these, to these situations are so not our instincts, he said. They're not even good pastoral instincts in many ways, right? Good pastors want to do something else, which is not to say we shouldn't comfort people and seek short-term amelioration of their suffering. Of course we should. But Peter is just constantly pointing the church to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This, right, and not any worldly comfort, that's, that was the man's point, is how Peter gives strong encouragement to his scattered flock. You cannot comfort people without the eschaton. So we know that Peter's not alone here, right? The, the, the church at Thessalonica had questions about the fate of the Christian dead. And Paul wrote to encourage them as well, right? To tell, them, to tell them that there's one who's ready to judge the living and the dead and who will appear to do just that. And Paul tells them that will entail a joyful reunion with the just dead. And so Paul writes this. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. He says this. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. No Christ coming in glory to judge the living and the dead means no hope. Grieve we will over our loved ones, but there's two kinds of grief. Grief that has hope and grief that is utterly pointless and hopeless. And Paul says, look, I'm writing to you so that you will grieve not as those who don't have hope. And then, and then what he, look what he says. It sounds so much like 1 Peter. He says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. I love that last line. Encourage one another with these words. What does Paul think the narration of Christ's coming does? He thinks it encourages the flock. He says we should encourage one another with these very words. When is the last time you encouraged someone with the second coming of Christ? There's a direct command to do that, right? With the future appearance of Jesus. Peter and Paul, by the way, do this on nearly every page of their letters. I think I mentioned last last week that I had the book of Hebrews read to me, and eventually I decided to start counting how many times the book referred to heaven. I think I mentioned that in here last week. And um, the answer is 151. Then I asked my phone, since my phone knows everything, (laughs) how many verses are in the book of Hebrews? That answer is 303. There's 303 verses in the book of Hebrews, and 151 of them refer either to God's being in glory, to heaven itself, to the age to come, or to the final judgment. 151 out of 303 verses. So Paul says the same thing as Peter's saying, you know, comfort one another 
with these words. So much weirdness has happened in the last number of decades and in the whole history of the church with respect to the second coming, right? So many, so many fringe people and groups making false predictions, so many odd things standing out with signs saying the end is at hand that I think we tend to shy away from it or it gets associated with some sort of apocalyptic craziness. But you've got to wipe all that away. It's in every other verse of the book of Hebrews. Now, that's maybe a high percentage, but it's all over the place in a sane, sober, theologically rich, sound human form. Arm yourselves to suffer, then, since Christ suffered. Be done with sin, since he died to liberate you, to set you free. But also be ready for abuse. In the meantime, Peter says, wait for and be encouraged by the coming Christ who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Ready to vindicate his saints, living and dead. Comfort one another. Comfort one another with these words. Amen.